the truth is we all have flaws, right? Like all of us have things about ourselves we're not proud of. All of us have done things we wish we hadn't done. We've all said things we wish we had never said. We all have some regrets in our lives. We all look at our past and there's things that we're just ashamed of. All of us in this room have a past. We all have weaknesses. I guess it's kind of a little bit what makes us human beings. All of us have flaws. And sometimes we can believe that those flaws disqualify us from being used by God. Bro, like our flaws are just too many. Like God only uses good people. God only uses perfect people. God only uses people that have a good background, that have a perfect record, that have a clean resume, that God kind of holds our flaws against us. And the more good we are, the more He'll use us, the more bad we are, the more we're discounted. We can easily believe that God only uses the best of us. But I think again we're going to see in today's story that that's not how God works. That, that God doesn't hold our past and our issues and our flaws against us. In fact, today we're going to see God use a man who's very flawed, has a lot of issues, messes up, does foolish things, sins a lot. God uses him to do incredible things, and we're going to find the story in the book of Judges, chapter 11. And if you have your Bible, will you turn with me there? We're introduced to a guy called Jephthah. Can all of you say Jephthah? We're going to find this from verse 1. Let's read it together in Judges 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but, everyone say but, he was a son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Here we introduce to a man who Scripture tells us is a mighty warrior. But there's a but. Uh, there's always a but, right? But there's something wrong. But there's an issue. But he has a weakness. And Jephthah's but was that he came from a prostitute. He came from that kind of relationship. And in this day and age, I tell you, there's probably nothing more humiliating. There's probably nothing more condescending and bad than to be from a prostitute. And we're going to see again, guys, that so many of the central characters in Scripture, they don't come from these noble backgrounds. They don't come from these perfect families. So many of these central characters in Scripture come from complicated relationships and and I bet if Jephthah was kind of writing down his flaws, if he was going to write down the things that were weaknesses about him, I, I bet you that one of the things he would have written down is that he was a son of a prostitute. I think he would have written down that he, he came not from noble character, but, but he came from a prostitute. I'm sure that would have been front and center on his mind. But that's not all we learn about him. We go on in verse 2, it says, And Gilead's wife, so Gilead's wife, he was actually a married man when he had this son with a prostitute. His wife bore him sons. And when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. And they said, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house. For you are the son of another woman. Ooh. Je uh, Jephthah's step 
or, or half-brothers and sisters, they drive him out. Obviously, one less person to divide the inheritance, inheritance up between meant more money for all of them. And what we see here with Jephthah is he experiences deep rejection. He's rejected by the people that should have had his back, the people that should have cared for him. He's rejected by his own family. Some of you know the pain of that, right? You know what it's like to be shunned aside, to be pushed aside, to be rejected, to be cut off, to be blocked. You know what it's like to be rejected maybe because of your faith, your beliefs, what you stand for, the choices you've made, who you are. Many people I know have been completely cut off, maybe because of who you married or, or because of where you fellowship, where you go to church. If that's ever happened to you, you'll know the pain of that, the sting of that. Jephthah, he's experiencing the pain and the sting of rejection. He feels unwanted. And I know that if he was writing down a list of his flaws, he would have write it down there, rejected. This is who I am. I'm the son of a prostitute, and I am rejected. I am unwanted. But there's more to his story. It tells us in verse 3, Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows, everyone say worthless fellows. Worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. (laughs) What does the Bible mean by worthless fellows? Well, it's a way of describing criminals. Remember, Jephthah was a warrior. He was a fighter. He's not the kind of guy you want to meet in a dark alley alone at night, right? He's a guy who could sort you out with one club. Like he was a he was a he was a fighter of a guy. And so as he goes to the land of Tob, he attracts to himself criminals. People that the Bible says were ruthless, worthless fellows, and it says that they went out with him. What does it mean that they went out with him? It means that they actually went out and they did criminal activity together. They they went out and they, they, they went on raids together. The, in other words, Jephthah became the leader of a gang. He became a criminal and it would just be one more thing to add to his list. Right? Criminal. Right? He, he could easily just be like, this is who I am. This is what defines me. This is my weaknesses. This is my flaws. I am the son of a prostitute. I'm not wanted by my own family. I'm a criminal. I do bad things with bad people. I I lead them towards bad things. And yet, guys, we're going to find today that God chooses this guy to lead Israel. God chooses this guy, the son of a prostitute. He chooses this guy, the one who was rejected, the the one who performed criminal activity. He he chooses this guy, and it's such a good reminder to you and I that God, He does not look at your past to project your future. He doesn't look at the worst parts about you. He doesn't look at your flaws and your weaknesses and your hang-ups and the things you've done and the things you said and then discount you for you. He doesn't look at those things about you and say, well, Your past is too messy. If anything, God loves to walk towards the messes. He loves to use the messes. And I believe 
in a room like this, there are some of you that didn't have the greatest entry into this world. And I want to remind you today, it doesn't matter what's on your list. It doesn't matter if you are the result of a prostitution relationship. It doesn't matter if you are from an affair. It doesn't matter if your parents said you were unwanted or or. Perhaps they wanted a boy and you're a girl, or they wanted a girl and you're a boy. Perhaps they've said you are a mistake. But I want to remind you today that God has divinely created you with divine purpose in His divine authority. By His divine decisions, He's given you purpose. Nothing about you is a mistake. And it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your history. God can still use you. God raises this man up as a leader of Israel. Now, how did he become the leader? What happened there? Well, remember, he's a tough guy. He's a warrior. Now he's got a gang, right? And so when Israel gets into trouble, <laughs> who do they turn to? Jephthah. They're like, hey, we know a fighter. We know a warrior. Happens in verse 4. Let's read it together. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. We want you to lead us. Isn't it beautiful how regardless of our flaws and our weaknesses and our issues, when God looks at you, he can see a mighty warrior. He can see potential. Why don't you look at someone close by, give them that encouragement, look at them in the eyes and say, hey, mighty warrior. <laughs> and so Jephthah steps into this leadership role as a judge of Israel. And the Ammonites are against Israel. So what does Jephthah do first? Well, the first thing he does is he actually tries to diplomatically bring peace. He goes and talks to them. He tries to bargain with them and reason with them and negotiate with the Ammonites. He doesn't actually just go to war impulsively and rashly. He, he tries to logically just talk them down, but the Ammonites will not listen to him. And so they have no choice but to pick up their tools of war, their weapons, and fight. And so they go to battle against the Ammonites and we see this unfolding from verse 29. In Judges 11, 29, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Everyone say, Spirit of the Lord. Now, I want to tell you guys, if you're going to go to war, you want that to be your introduction. Like, if you're going to go to war, you want that to be the way that you are introduced. Because you know that nowhere in the Bible does it say, And the Spirit of the Lord was upon them, and they were defeated. Nowhere in, nowhere in Scripture does it say, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon them, and the enemy won. No, no, no. Every time we see the Spirit of the Lord upon us, it always equals victory. It always means the enemy has been defeated. And so the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. And what we know about this is it means the enemy is going to be defeated. They have no chance. They have picked a fight with God. You always lose. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Jephthah. This flawed and troubled man with many weaknesses and a troubled past, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. God is not scared of your mess. And we know victory is guaranteed. And yet, here's where the story takes a turn. 
Because Jephthah, even though he has the Spirit of the Lord upon him, he does something now really foolish. Jephthah makes a mistake. He does something illogical and out of God's will, and things go horribly wrong because Jephthah here decides to try and make a deal with God. He tries to bargain with God and manipulate God. It tells us this from verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now, what is a vow? A vow is when you make a promise not to a person, but you make a promise to God. When I make a promise to you, it's a promise. When I make a promise to God, it is a vow. And you better believe God holds us to our vows, right? This is what we do, for example, in the act of marriage. When we're not promising just to each other, we're promising to God. And any promise you've ever made to God, God, I promise. Well, that becomes a vow. It's a different level to a promise. Jethro goes and he makes a vow to the Lord. And he says, Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand. Everyone say, if. Now we just read that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He didn't need to do this. The victory had already been given. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Victory was already guaranteed. And yet what we see is Jephthah is doubting the anointing. He's doubting God's faithfulness. He's thinking, I still need to do something. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me, but I still need to do something. So if, Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Of course, Victory was already guaranteed. It was already secure. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. So he goes to to God and he tries to bargain with God and says, God, if you will give me victory, I'm not sure still, but if you will give me the victory, then then God, when I get home, whatever comes out of the house to greet me first, I want to offer that up as a burnt sacrifice to you. (laughs) He goes to war. He has the victory. And he comes back home. And it tells us this in verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourine and with dancers. From verse 34. She was his only child. (laughs) Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas! My daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, Father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let the thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I might go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. Weep for the fact that I've never got married. I've never started a family, and and I leave nothing behind. I and my companions, let me go up to the mountains with my friends for two months. So Jephthah said to her, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. 
And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to the vow that he had made. Jethro offers his only daughter up as a burnt offering to God. How did it go so wrong? How does this man, anointed by God, the chosen leader of Israel, suddenly end up making an unnecessary vow that ends up in his daughter, his only daughter, being sacrificed? How does it go so wrong? What's happening here in the story of Jephthah? Because now he can add something more to his list, can't he? Murderer. Now, he, he's not just the son of a prostitute right now. Now, he's not just one who's been rejected. Now, he's not just one that's a criminal. Now, he's a murderer as well. I mean, this is not an impressive resume, guys. Uh, like, this is not a great reputation, right? Murderer. Well, firstly, let me just tell you quick that when I read this, it, it just reaffirms the fact that I can really trust the Bible. It just shows me the Bible is not trying to make itself look good. It's not some PR campaign made to look the people look like the people of God are perfect and put together. The Bible is not scared to go there and mention the stuff and the flaws and the complications and the issues. And, and when people sin, it tells us. When there's issues, it tells us. When it makes mistakes, it tells us. And why it's important that we can trust that is because later on, you flip over a few pages and you find the New Testament where it tells us that there was a man called Jesus Christ who never sinned. And now when it tells us that, we can believe it because if he sinned, it would have told us. It was not scared to talk about the sin of the great men and women of God. It wasn't scared to tell us about the mistakes of, of Noah and, and Abraham and, and Moses and David and Jephthah. And so when it tells us that there was a man with no sin, we know that to be true. The Bible is not concerned about making itself look a certain way. If it was a PR campaign, right, made to make God look good, there'd be certain stories we would delete. There, there'd be certain pages we would rip out, and uh, we'd probably begin with the story of Jephthah. The Bible is a book that we know that we can trust. But the story makes me ask two big questions. The first is, why did Jephthah do this? Why make this vow in the first place? God didn't ask him to do this. It was completely out of his own compulsion. Like, why did Jephthah do this? And, and secondly, it makes me think, when he realized it's his daughter he would have to sacrifice, why still go through with it? Like, why not back out of the deal? So let's start with the first question, why? Why did he want to commit a human sacrifice? And by the way, that is what he had in mind this whole time. If you look in the original language, when Jephthah's talking about someone coming out to greet him, it's talking about a human being, the way humans greet each other. So he knew that he would, in exchange for this victory, be sacrificing a human. He also knew it would most likely be a woman, because that was customary in Israel. If you returned from war and you were victorious, there would be women who would come out. Just look at David, look at Moses. There would be the woman come out with dancing and a tambourine. So Jephthah was prepared to make a human sacrifice in exchange for victory over the Ammonites. And you've got to ask, why? Well, let me tell you where Israel is at the moment. They're in a place that is surrounded 
by two other nations at this time of history, the Canaanites and the Moabites. And guess what both those nations practiced? Human sacrifice. Both of these nations performed human sacrifices. They believed that if you wanted to get something from God, you had to give Him something. Right? They believed that God was this transactional God. So if I wanted to get something, if I wanted my crops to be blessed, if I wanted my ground to be fertile, if I wanted rain to fall from the sky, I needed to sacrifice something to God in order to get that. In other words, Jephthah had taken on the pagan beliefs of their, of their gods and he transferred it into his faith to our God. He had absorbed the beliefs, the patterns, the customs of the world around him. And it was now affecting his faith. <laughs> he was treating God the same way the pagans treated their God. Our God, our, our Yahweh. And it turns out, I mean, Jephthah had this strange commitment to God, but at the same time, he had this strange lack of knowing who God really was. And even though he had the Spirit of the Lord on him, he didn't know him. He didn't truly know that our God is not a God that you can bargain with. He didn't know that our God is not one who accepts human sacrifices. In fact, what our God delights in is, is br saving His children, bringing them closer. He didn't know how Deuteronomy and Leviticus would forbid human sacrifices, that God sees it as repulsive and abhorrent. He commands us to never do that. Jephthah didn't truly know God, and his view of God was determined by the world around him instead of by God himself. And, and guys, I think the story is a bit of a warning for us, for you and me today, because I wish this only happened to Jephthah. But I was kind of thinking this week, I don't think we realize how much this world affects our beliefs. I don't think we truly sometimes realize how much this world's view has affected our view how much their view of God has affected our view of God. And it kind of made me wonder, like, are we willing to sit and think, how many pagans' beliefs, how, how much of this world's beliefs have I accepted as true? How much of this world's customs and beliefs have I adopted for myself? I mean, how much about what the world thinks about things, about how, what the world thinks about politics and and family, and, and marriage, and parenting, and sexuality, and money, and morality, and divorce. Like how much of, of these things are, are in line with what God thinks about these things? And, and how much have we just absorbed the customs and patterns of this world? Because we see Jephthah, this has a very real effect on his faith. And because he has accepted and adopted the customs of the pagan nations, he loses that which is most precious to him. He loses his daughter. He loses his legacy, his chance of leaving behind a family. You know, Jephthah started to believe that God is transactional. And, and perhaps in your life, maybe you've started to believe that as well. This idea that I have to give something to God in order to get something from God. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Come be honest. Say, God, if you would just heal that person, I promise I'll be more faithful to you. 
God, if I could just get that job, I promise I'll be tithing. God, if, if I could just pass this exam, I promise I'm going to go to church every Sunday. If we try to do that, you know, that's, that's a pagan belief. Do you know that our God is not transactional? He's relational. Our God is not a transactional God. He's a relational God. He's interested in relationships, real relationships to us. He's not looking for us to sacrifice in order to give. He just wants to give. In fact, it is God who actually sacrifices his only son on our behalf. It's the exact opposite of what Jesser did with his child. God is the one who sacrifices for us. He gave for us. And sometimes we believe God is transactional. God won't do this because I have been unfaithful. God won't do this because I have been disobedient. And if I was just more obedient, God would answer my prayers. If I just did more, God, God would do more. Like we take on this pagan transactional belief with God, but that's the world's thinking about God. We know that our God is a God who's gracious and He gives and He loves and He loves and He loves. Like our God is a God who wants to outgive you. He's not a transactional God. He's a relational God. But what I, what I think is beautiful about all of this is that God still uses him, e even though his beliefs are wrong. I mean, this even affected his daughter. Think about it. His daughter had also accepted the pagan beliefs of the nations around her. When Jesus says to her, hey, I've made this deal with God. I've made this vow with God. She doesn't say, no, dad. That's not how God works. That's not Yahweh's way of doing business. No, no, no. She's like, well, if this is what you've done, then so be it. Right? She totally accepted the same belief of her dad. And, and it's a bit of a warning to us parents. That sometimes our wrong belief about God can be transferred to our children as well. And when you have children, guys, we have to make sure that our view of God, our understanding of God, is based on what God says and not what this world says. Because it affects this next generation that's below us. God is not transactional. And so that's why he made this deal. That's why Jephthah did this. He had, he had become like the pagan nations around him. But the question then becomes, well, why did he keep it? Why keep this deal when he realizes it's his daughter that's greeting him? It's his daughter that he's going to sacrifice. A lot of people have believed that perhaps he kept this because of the vow. That Jephthah understood that a vow shouldn't be broken, that a vow is binding. That Jephthah would have thought that not doing it, not honoring the vow, would have been disobedient. That God was holding him to these words. Because we know that God takes words seriously. He takes promises seriously. Jephthah would have known of texts like in Ecclesiastes 5 where it says this in verse 4. When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following it through. For God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to Him. Better to say nothing than to make a promise and not keep it. Don't let your mouth make you sin. And don't offend yourself by telling the temple messenger that the promise you made was a mistake. Scripture teaches us that vows can never be a mistake. A mistake is when I, you know, bump a glass off a table. A mistake is when I bump my toe 
on the way up the stairs, like, that's a mistake. When I stand in front of God and I make a promise to Him, that can never be a mistake. It's made with intention. I do that on purpose. And so would it have been wrong for Jephthah to back out of his vow? Would God have wanted him to follow through on that human sacrifice just because he had promised it? Well, let me remind you again, God forbids human sacrifice. He finds it appalling. And so let me give you a different kind of example. Imagine I said to you, well, I have promised that tonight I'm going to have an affair. I've promised God tonight I'm going to cheat on my wife. What would your reply to me be? Would you say, well, Ryan, you need to be a man of integrity and character. And you need to go do that tonight. You have promised God. Be a man of your word. Your word is binding. Right? Or would you Will Smith me? Right? Hopefully, you would Will Smith me. Right? Because, because it would be ridiculous to ever think that God would hold you to sin. That God would command you to sin. That His will would be to sin. No. Jethro was not bound by this. It was sinful. This idea of sacrificing this human girl. So why did he do it? Well, it's because he was so, so entrenched by the beliefs of the world around him. He was so accustomed to the pagan nations. And so what should he have done? Jephthah should have just repented. That's what he should have done. He should have just repented and said, God, I'm sorry I was trying to manipulate you. I'm sorry I was trying to twist your arm. I'm sorry I forgot who you are, that you, you're not transactional. You're not like those pagan nations. God, I'm sorry that, that I, I put you in that same category. He, he should have said, God, I'm just sorry. I, I'm sorry I, I'm, I'm breaking my vow to you because I know you, you don't lead me towards sin ever. He should have repented, but instead he was so wrapped up in the beliefs of the world around him that he murdered his only child. But you know what surprises me out of all of this? God looked at this man, the son of a prostitute, this rejected criminal, this murderer of his his own children. You know what God did? He gave him victory anyway. Isn't that crazy? God gave him victory anyway. Even though this is who Jephthah was, God still allowed him to defeat the Ammonites. Now, this was after the vow. God still gives him victory, and, and it's a reminder to me of how gracious God is. It reminds me, church, that God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. God is good even when we're bad. Like God, He's not only good when you get it right. He's not only faithful when you tick all the boxes, when you pass the test. No, God is faithful because that is who He is. It's part of His character. That's just who God is. He's always faithful even when we're unfaithful. Isn't He a good God? I love that even through our flaws, even through our issues, even through the things that that might define us, the worst parts of us, that, that God doesn't base our use for His kingdom on these lists. 
He still sees the best in us. Even when we see the worst. In fact, you might, you might be surprised where Jephthah ends up in Scripture. We actually see him again later on in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we refer to that in the Bible as the Hall of Faith. You can think about it as a Hall of Fame, where the Christian heroes of our faith are mentioned. And guess who gets a mention? Let's read Hebrews eleven thirty-two. Paul says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets. Look who he, he gets a mention by Gideon and David. He gets a mention with Samuel. And you might look at that and say, God, he doesn't belong there. And, and if his name has shocked you, if it's shocking to you that Jephthah, he shows up in the great hall of faith. If, if you're looking at him and saying, but Jephthah, you don't belong there. Well, let me remind you that these lists in scripture, the hall of faith is not about these men and women who look perfect and got it right. This is a list of who God can use in spite of their sin, who God can use in spite of their flaws, who God can use in spite of their list, in spite of their background, in spite of their personality quirks, like in spite of their experience, like God can use anyone. That's what this list is about. And you might look and say, I don't belong there. But you do. Because God can use anyone. There is no one God doesn't use. And that just shows us God's incredible grace, right? His incredible faithfulness. And church, I want to remind you today, this, this is the God we serve. We worship the God of Jephthah. We worship this God who doesn't look at our flaws and our past and then determine whether he's going to use us in the future. He separates those two things. We worship a God who doesn't wait till we get it right before he blesses us. Who doesn't wait for the right obedience or the right sacrifice before he gives us. We don't worship this God who's transactional. We worship a God who is relational. We worship a God. If God can use this daughter-killing, gang-leading criminal, he can use you. And he can use you for his kingdom to end up in the hall of faith. And God wants to use you. You have been made divinely on purpose, with purpose, by divine authority. You're here because God wants you to be. And I want you to think about the, your list. Like, what would it look like? Can you close your eyes for a moment? Even if you're online or watching somewhere else, just, what would your list look like? What does it say? There might be some words in here you're embarrassed about. Some things in your list you don't like to admit. In fact, at the door, we handed you a pencil and a piece of paper. And I want to invite you right now to make your list. Can you write down? I'm just going to give you a minute or so. Start writing down in there. What are the things that define you? What are the weaknesses and the flaws that you hate about yourself? that you think disqualify you from being used of God? Can you write it down for a moment? 
let's just give you some time to do that today. I want to ask all of you to just put that list in your hands. Can you hold it in front of you? We're going to pray together. God, I want to thank you that when you look at us, you don't do this. God, I thank you that this does not determine our value, our purpose, our worth our calling. Thank you, God, that you see the best in us, that what is in our hands is not your focus. Thank you, Jesus Christ, that you died for this list. You've redeemed us from this list. <laughs> you set us above this. I want to thank you, God, that as we start to understand and believe who you are, we realize that this has no hold on us anymore has no hold in us, that you use us anyway. So church, here's what I invite you to do right now. Thank you, Father God, that you do not hold these things against us. That in spite of our weaknesses, our flaws, our mistakes, our foolish decisions, our wrong view of you, in spite of all these things, God, you want to use our lives. God, I'm so grateful that you're not transactional. God, I'm just so thankful that your faithfulness and your goodness towards me doesn't depend on me. It depends on you. That you're good just because you're good. And you're faithful just because you're faithful. Wherever you are right now, can you just thank God for His faithfulness? That He's been faithful even when you've been unfaithful. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Oh, God, we love you. And we're grateful for you. And God, I want to pray when the devil comes with his list and he starts to read it out against us. May we stand in the authority you've given us. May we declare your grace and your freedom over our lives. I want to thank you, God, that this world does not define us, and not even our own thoughts define us, but only who you say we are. That's what defines us, God. That is what we will believe. So, Father, start to renew our minds. God, I pray that you would point out the things in our faith where we have adopted pagan customs and beliefs, where we no longer true to your word. 
where we no longer see you accurately, Lord. Would you point out those things in our lives so that we can follow you truly, so that our children can see our belief and adopt correct belief, a correct view of who you are. God, I want to thank you that your grace is just so undeserving, but it makes us so grateful, Lord. We're so grateful. God, if you can use Jennifer, you can use me. And I thank you, God, that you want to. That's your purpose for our lives. We pray this now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.